Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from The Fury, made in 1978. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hello, John Williams fans. Thanks for joining me today. My co-host on this episode is someone who, like me, has been doing a lot of research on John Williams' career. He runs the website, The Legacy of John Williams, where you can find lots of interviews with musicians and analyses of John Williams' scores. It's my pleasure to have Maurizio Caschetto on the baton today. Buongiorno, Maurizio. Hello, Jeff, and hello to all the listeners of the baton. Uh, thank you for having me, and it's great to be here on your show. Some of our listeners might recognize the last name Caschetto. Maurizio's brother, John Maria, was my first co-host on this podcast when he joined me to talk about the 1970 film Story of a Woman. It's great to know that the admiration of John Williams is a big part of your family, and it's a big part of your life with the website. Tell the listeners how you came to create the idea for the website. Uh, thank you for asking, Jeff. Uh, well, it's a little bit of a long story, but I'll try to explain myself briefly. Um, so this website is called The Legacy of John Williams, and it is actually uh, an idea I toyed with for a few years when I started thinking about a way to express my own admiration uh, toward John Williams and his music. Uh, while talking to other Williams admirers over the years, especially to friends who are musicians, but also scholars, filmmakers, or just simple fans, um, I realized we all share this common experience. We, are, we were all inspired by John Williams, not just in our tastes in music, in our listening preferences, but also in our study and career choices we made through our lives. And then I read several interviews over the years with young people across the world where basically all of them said how much the music of John Williams inspired them to pursue a professional career as musicians. And so I realized suddenly that the legacy of John Williams was something much bigger than the popularity of certain films and franchises he worked on in their respective scores. Of course, that is important, very important as well, but I think John Williams can be really compared to a modern-day Mozart for the sheer volume and the quality of inspiring music he wrote over the course of his 60-plus years career. So he's leaving a tremendous legacy in this sense to all, uh, to all of us, to all humankind. And with this website of mine, I try to celebrate this specific aspects of his artistic life. Uh, I try very hard to put focus and spotlight on certain themes and aspects of his career, but essentially I'm trying to build a reference archive for anyone who wants to go deeper into William's multifaceted musical personality and how it influenced at least two generations of people and counting. And I have to say, some of the articles you published have helped me in my own journey through John Williams' career. And there has been a lot of great information about music in general that has been fun to read as well. So thank you very much for that. Oh, thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate your, your comments, and I really do appreciate your show as well. It's a great way to look at John Williams' score, scores and career in a very large, broad way. So we're talking about The Fury for today's episode, and it's the first of three film scores Williams would write for films released in 1978. I've mentioned this many, many times on this podcast, but his work on this film immediately after Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind showed how much of a chameleon Williams was in terms of writing music for movies. All three scores sound nothing like each other, though they all have in common the mastery of writing wonderful melodies that resonate throughout. Yes, uh, The Fury is the first horror-slash-thriller movie John Williams ever scored, and it's his one and only collaboration with acclaimed director Brian De Palma, 
who back in the 1970s was one of the burgeoning talents of the so-called New Hollywood generation, a group of directors that included Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. So John Williams came on board on the project after writing a letter to Brian De Palma expressing his admiration and congratulations for the way he treated Bernard Herrmann's score in the 1976 film Obsession. Uh, Williams was a dear friend of Herrmann, who passed away on Christmas Eve in 1976, right after working on the Palma's film and Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Knowing the connection that had existed between Herrmann and Williams, De Palma offered Williams the opportunity to score The Fury, and the composer accepted immediately. At the time of this negotiation, uh, Williams' score to Star Wars was red hot, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind was just on the horizon. So De Palma secured Williams at the right time, I would say, as Williams was becoming the most famous and requested film composer in Hollywood. Securing his name on a new film was certainly a major asset for The Fury. But there was a catch to Williams taking on this assignment. Because De Palma had such an affinity for Bernard Herrmann and was likely going to have Herrmann score the Fury, if not for Herrmann's untimely death, De Palma asked Williams to write a, quote, Herrmann-esque score in pretty much every way. I'm sure Williams didn't mind that stipulation, but he certainly had to feel constrained in the music he would write. It's nothing new for directors to ask composers to write a score in a certain way, but this was a very specific direction for Williams. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, these things happen all the time in Hollywood. Virtually all composers are asked to follow very specific guidelines in terms of style and tone, if not asked to straight out copy the temp track. I think Williams, however, found a perfect balance here, writing a score that harkens back to the sound and the approach of Bernard Herrmann, but at the same time, infusing his own personality all throughout. It's not a mere Bernard Herrmann pastiche, but it's more a reinterpretation of certain Herrmann stylings, filtered through Williams' own fingerprints. So as we get into talking about the score, I want our listeners to know that we will be revealing some plot points in the film, so spoiler alert right now. If you remember the end of Carrie, there's a girl who has a dream that the dead Carrie reaches out from underground and grabs the girl's hand. That girl is Sue Snell, played by Amy Irving. And Irving is one of the stars of The Fury, playing Jillian, a girl with telekinetic and psychic powers. Yes, I know Carrie was a novel by Stephen King, and The Fury was a novel by John Ferris, but De Palma surely had to know that people would make the connection right away, especially since Irving was in Carrie just two years earlier. Yeah, a bit of trivia about Amy Irving is that back in those years, she was Steven Spielberg's fiancée and would become his wife a few years later. So there is some kind of further connection with John Williams, I'd say. Now, this is a great cast, not the least of which is Kirk Douglas playing Peter, the father of a boy who has special psychic powers and is kidnapped by a government agency for some unknown military use. And there's John Cassavetes putting in some acting credits while still moonlighting as a director. Another great thing about The Fury is noticing a few actors who would become big stars in a few years. Daryl Hannah, who would make her breakthrough as a mermaid in Splash in 1984, plays one of Jillian's classmates. And in a lengthy sequence, Dennis Franz plays a security officer 15 years before he would get real famous as Detective Sipowitz on the TV show NYPD Blue. Now before we start talking about the score, we have to mention one very important point. The score was recorded in Hollywood in mid-January 1978, but the official commercial album release of the score featured the London Symphony Orchestra, who performed one of the best re-recordings of a John Williams score ever that February. The reasons why Williams did not use the studio orchestra on the album release are not entirely clear. 
Williams has said the time frame during which he would have been preparing the music for the album coincided with his previously arranged time in London preparing for Superman. So, he asked the LSO to record the music, and they did. Another reason would be the expensive costs to reuse music from union musicians on an album. Apparently, it was cheaper to hire the LSO to re-record the score. Yes, uh, I think it's important to elaborate a little bit on this. As you said, the original Star Trek album issued at the time of the film's release in cinemas is not the same recording as heard in the movie, but a full re-recording made by Williams with the London Symphony Orchestra. Um, the composer became so enamored with that orchestra that he really looked for any chance to record with them. The music of The Fury has a very operatic character, and it fits very well the character of the LSO of that era, which, under the musical direction of André Previn, became a household name internationally in classical music. In fact, it's my opinion that the LSO performance for the album is superior to the one heard in the film, which is absolutely fine nonetheless. But the LSO album recording has a very deep, melodramatic quality, somewhat absent in the film performance. In some moments, the music surges to Gustav Mahler-like intensity, I would say. Perhaps it has to do with the fact that Williams recorded it free from any synchronization point with the film, or perhaps it's because it was recorded in an old church, Curiously, the same venue used by Bernard Herrmann to record his score for Obsession, by the way. Oh boy, the connections to Herrmann run so deep with the Fury. Not only writing in his style, but recording the music in the same location where Herrmann would record one of his final scores. Yes, it, it definitely seems that Bernard Herrmann's spirit was probably wandering around John Williams <laughs> <laughs> back in those days. Uh, but back to the album, I think uh, the end result is absolutely compelling. Uh, it's my opinion that The Fury is one of his most successful albums in this regard. It plays like a gothic symphony. But I'm very glad that specialty soundtrack labels like Varese and La La Land were able to recover also the original film recording and put it out on disc. In some ways, I think the film version of the score sounds even more Hermann-esque, especially the woodwind playing. Maurizio, I haven't listened to as much music by Bernard Herrmann as I probably should, so I hope you can help our listeners determine some of the cues in the score that feel like Bernard Herrmann might have written them. Oh yes, absolutely, I'd love to. Um, the whole score, I say, is a very passionate homage to the music of Bernard Herrmann, especially the scores for the Alfred Hitchcock films such as Vertigo, but also some lesser-known scores uh, like On Dangerous Ground and even Cape Fear, the old version. A piece that might emphasize this the most is the music from the main titles. It is a wonderful encapsulation of the score's overall approach and style, it's a brooding, minor-mode composition, set in triple time, almost waltz-like, with an ascending, descending figure that vaguely recalls Herman's main title theme from Vertigo. And, as in that piece, the music suggests a sense of dread and imminent danger, depicting musically the whirlpool of danger and death in which the main characters are going to be engulfed, is the main thematic idea for the film, and it's presented immediately in all its power and menace.
It gets more and more intense as it goes along, which is definitely the pace of this film. It's perfect for a psychological thriller. Yes, I agree. And there are cues in the film where Williams takes fragments of this idea, you know, the ascending, descending figure, and does some great variations on it. In the end, it's a musical idea that runs throughout the film in a very subtle way most of the time, but there are also examples where it's not so subtle, I say. A good example is the cue Gillian's vision for the scene when Gillian has the horrific vision of the terrorist attack on Peter, Robin's father. And here Williams does some terrific permutation on this apparently simple idea. We must also mention a scene later in the film when Robin wanders through a carnival fair and decides to let loose his powers over an unfortunate group of people on a carousel. Here we hear a Calliope music coming from the carousel itself and if you listen carefully it's a twisted variation on the main title theme. If the music for the opening titles gets you feeling that Bernard Herrmann vibe, Vision on the Stairs is the cue that puts that into full strength. It accompanies one of the Palmo's trademark techniques of using split screen, this time having the main action swirling around Gillian as she sees a vision of what happened to Kirk Douglas' son, Robin. It's one of the most Hermann-esque piece of the score, especially in the orchestration uh, notice how the piccolo goes over the top of the melody at the beginning, a technique frequently used by Herman, and it's a frenzied and almost over-the-top piece of music, but one that brilliantly encapsulates the score's main virtues.
Amy Irving's Jillian is pretty much the star of the film, even though Irving gets third billing behind Kirk Douglas and John Cassavetes. It's similar to how Christopher Reeve would be introduced on screen behind Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman in Superman. Williams wrote some interesting music for Jillian's mental powers, using the synthesizer and theremin in a few scenes. My favorite one is our introduction to Jillian's abilities as she mentally controls a model train that gets out of control when she also sees a vision of a dead body covered in blood. My favorite moment featuring Williams writing great music for Gillian is the montage where we see her rehabilitation in the Research Institute. It's a playful scherzo based on Gillian's theme with a jaunty writing for trumpet and woodwinds, almost a symphonic miniature that functioned perfectly also as a standalone piece, especially in the extended version Williams wrote for the soundtrack album. I love the flute in that piece. It's telling me that, for now, everything is going well for Jillian. No one is bleeding after she touches them. She is smiling for the first time in a long, long time. Now, I would have liked to have ended the movie there with us believing Jillian is getting the treatment she needed. But immediately after this scene is that moment we mentioned earlier when she has the vision of Peter's son. So things quickly turn back to frightening. Now let's get to the main musical set piece of the film, Jillian's Escape from the Institute. She has so many visions of Robin that she is compelled to find him and help him. 
The only way to do that is with the help of a nurse named Hester, who is also working as a spy for Peter to help him get information on his son's whereabouts. Hester hatches a plan to break Jillian out, and once Jillian gets outside, we get the film's most stunning and spectacular sequence. Yes, it's a shot entirely in slow motion, and the sequence is totally dependent on William's music, since it has no dialogue and almost no sound effects. What we see sometimes looks absolutely over the top and almost absurd, especially when we see it in slow motion. Here, the Palma plays with our perception of time and reality, and the music helps us to heighten our senses, perhaps to make us feel like Jillian with her altered sense of reality. In this sense, the music truly makes the scene dramatically compelling. When Jillian runs away, we hear fragments of the melodic material associated with her played almost in slow motion. But soon, the music turns menacing as things start to go grim. Here, the music both accompanies and enhances what we see, creating a dramatic third dimension. It's also a fantastic piece of music in itself, with a shape and a structure, again molded in the vernacular of Bernard Herrmann, where the composer shows off his absolutely brilliant control of the symphonic language. strings are so cheerful here, and Williams is, of course, giving us a false sense of hope that Jillian and Hester will meet up with Peter and all three of them will get away without incident. But of course that will definitely not happen. Hester is killed and the mood turns dark.
So Maurizio, as I said, because I'm not extremely schooled in the language of Bernard Herrmann, perhaps you can give us some insight into why the music there feels like it is written in his style. Absolutely, yes. Uh, I think Williams, on one side here, uses some of the typical orchestral techniques dear to Herrmann, such as pitting high register instruments against very low register ones, like piccolo versus trombone, as we said before, or using dynamics, loud and soft, in a very similar way to Herman, especially in the way he harmonizes woodwinds. On the other side, Williams scores the inherent drama on the backdrop and the subtext, not just the action and what we already see. And he reminds us of the film's undercurrent theme of these young people's doomed existence. This is something Herman did a lot in his scores for Alfred Hitchcock's film, accompanying not just the plot, but the film's broader ideas and how these relate to the protagonists, building the score's fundament upon it. So we could use an analogy with painting. It's not like using watercolor with a fine set of brushes, but actually it's painting with big, broad strokes in primary colors and using big brushes to communicate strong, primal feelings. That makes a lot of sense. Sometimes Williams's music focuses on the scene at hand, painting with those fine sets of brushes, and I agree that this music paints with broad strokes. I do feel that was the highlight of Psycho's music, that Herman was working mostly on creating a broad mood about the film and the characters, instead of going for some more obvious musical thematic material. I think, of course, the shower scene is a big example of that. <laughs> I agree with that. After the escape scene, we are given a moment to catch our breath, both dramatically and musically, with a scene where Peter, now in grief for the loss of Hester, takes a bus with Gillian to find Robin. The scene is accompanied with a very tender and lovely piece for oboe and strings, where Williams presents a new melodic idea otherwise absent in the rest of the score. It's almost foreign to the rest of the school, but it's dramatically crucial to help the audience understand Peter's feelings for his son. Then, the movie takes a hard right turn into horror in the final 20 minutes. This is very similar to the plot of Carrie, when the prom scene there changed the film into pure horror schlock. Robin has been living with Susan, his former doctor, in Seattle, and Susan hasn't done well to control him. 
Robin believes that Susan no longer loves him, and he knows Jillian is just outside. Robin thinks Susan will replace him, and Robin's solution is to torture and kill her. The music for the beginning of the scene has the basses and cellos play in a register John Williams hasn't explored since Jaws. Yes, this scene is a wonderful example of horror scoring. Williams enhances and amplifies the sequence with a piece that again swirls and engulfs the characters, depicting Robin's rage with a pitch-perfect sense of drama. As you said, it's interesting to notice Williams' use of dynamics and registers in the instruments. The horns especially here are impressive toward the final moments of the cue. And we can definitely hear a foreshadowing of his score for Dracula, which he would write the next year. And here's where the real horror begins. Susan begins bleeding out of her ears and mouth while Robin lifts her in the air. We'll be switching back and forth between this scene and Peter and Jillian escaping the tack dogs outside. Thank <laughs> you. 
And if you thought the scene when Robin kills Susan was bad enough, just wait for the finale. Jillian and John Cassavetti's character Childress are the only survivors of this film, and Childress tries to comfort Jillian. She doesn't fall for it, and after she kisses his eyes, he begins to bleed. And right at that moment, the cue starts with a Shostakovich-like sforzando in the strings, growing in intensity and adding brass and woodwinds to add power and excitement. The piece reaches a terrific, but I should say terrifying, climax when Gillian finally unleashes all her power to destroy the evil Childress. Williams brings back the theremin to make clear this is a real horror film and pulls out all the stops to deliver a wonderful cataclysmic, and I say explosive, musical crescendo. Oh yeah, it's literally explosive. I cannot believe that De Palma decided to show that final explosion 13 times, 13 different cuts. It was just overkill, I think. And it goes back to him trying to want outdo everything that came before him. You know that famous beheading scene in The Omen where the photographer's head gets cut off and we see it like four times? De Palma said, four times, that's nothing. We're going to show it 13 times. Yeah, but I think De Palma did it on the very purpose of ending the film with a grim sense of fun, I would say. The music for the finale is so over the top that it seems to suggest that we don't have to take all this too seriously. It's just a fun horror film. However, again, both De Palma and Williams play with our perception of time and reality, as I said before. So seeing the explosion from so many different angles repeatedly is a way to state the film's undercurrent theme. This is a story about people manipulating the reality around them, but very much in spite of themselves, and constantly surrounded by death. I think John Williams really nails this feeling with his music. And if you only heard the London Symphony Orchestra version of this score, you will have not heard this amazing music away from the film. So as we said, John Williams recorded the score in Los Angeles, and he did it over three days in January 1978. As I mentioned earlier, he took off for London immediately to conduct a concert with the London Symphony Orchestra, then record the album version of the score to The Fury. Now, While the movie was playing in theaters in March 1978, John Williams was watching the first cut of Superman with Richard Donner and producer Ilya Salkind. As much as John Williams fans praise his work on The Fury, I'm surprised to read very few comments wishing the score had been nominated for an Oscar. Most people don't seem to think it was of that quality. Personally, I don't think the score deserved a nomination either, especially given that it wasn't technically a John Williams score. If Bernard Herrmann had been alive and wrote the same music, Herrmann might have been an Oscar nominee. 
But the scores nominated from 1978 were quite good, including the score to Superman, which I'll be discussing very soon. Maurizio, I really appreciate you joining me on this episode. I know running your website keeps you pretty busy, so thanks for taking the time to help us again gain a better appreciation of this score. I'm very, very grateful I was able to join you here today, Jeff, and thank you. Thank you again for inviting me on your show. It has been a great fun, and I hope to be here again as a guest, perhaps for another lesser-known gem from John Williams' vast repertoire. I look forward to that. And once again, you should visit his website at thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com. You'll find a wonderful article detailing the history of John Williams' work with the London Symphony Orchestra that led to recording the score to Superman. It's a great read that I hope will get you more excited for my discussion of Superman on an upcoming episode. As always, I look forward to your emails, so please keep them coming to jeffswim at aol.com. Your comments about the show let me know what you like or don't like about the show. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and until next time, the baton is down.